Hello, and thank you for joining us again on Into the Prey. We've got a quick favour to ask you guys before listening to this week's episode. We want to ask you to go ahead to rate and review Into the Prey so that we can lift the level of what we're doing further. Visibility in the podcast charts would help with that massively. It would also help to address the imbalance where folk can often be very specific and more than willing to leave reviews or so-called reviews when they're not happy with what we're doing. So there are, we believe, a vast majority of you who are happy and appreciative and grateful. It'd be very good to convert that into rates and reviews that give us a more reflective presence in the podcast chart so if you go ahead and do that we've also got a new patreon page if you want to become one of our patrons stroke supporters please do follow that link look at the information and consider doing that as well thanks again for listening and please do feel free to use the contact page to drop us a line with any questions thoughts or reflections the devil wants that on the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp that's what the devil wants okay and that is what's happening but actually, it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. Today we meet with Anne Widdicombe, and the Right Honourable, I should say, the Right Honourable Anne Widdicombe, ex-MP, ex-MEP, member of the European Parliament, political commentator, author and... TV personality, you've probably seen her on Strictly Come Dancing uh, in the last few years. Now, Anne has kindly agreed to meet with me again. She she and I met a couple of months ago during the, the first kind of lockdown phase of this weird phase in human history. And there are a couple of things that recur in our conversation today that we'd mentioned. So if you're not listened to that previous episode uh, I can't tell you exactly when it was, but I'll dig it out and put it into the show notes for you. Please go ahead and do that. Today we talk about politics and, and the prophetic. And I wanted to ask Anne to look briefly in uh, the life of Isaiah. Isaiah was enmeshed in the political world at the time of his ministry. And um, I wanted to speak to somebody who's got a, a rich a rich CV, as it were, when it comes to the, the political world and involvement in um, the government in, 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 in various different ways and has, has a kind of glittering um, a glittering uh, CV. So go ahead to Wikipedia or something if you want to find out more. I'll put a link into the show notes so you can read that before you listen to, to the conversation with Anne. But I want to encourage you to listen to the end because in and amongst our 25-minute, whatever it was, half-an-hour conversation, it was at the very end that I felt something emerged from our conversation that I think is critically important. There were some good there were some good moments of our conversation to do with Isaiah and Anne was kind enough to do a little little kind of overview of the of the role of the prophets generally in the life of corporate Israel and so on and so forth. But it was right at the end and I don't want to preempt that anymore. So without further ado, let's go over to the conversation today with Anne Widdicombe. We don't have to depend on the church as an institution. We depend on Almighty God, you know. And He has made promises to us that, that you know, that if we are faithful, uh, He will not be ashamed of us. How are you doing, Anne? I'm doing very well, thank you, and I hope all the listeners are too. Um, I'm uh, Anne Whitcomb. I used to be a Conservative uh, government minister uh, and uh, member of Parliament for 23 years. Uh, and then I retired and did things like Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, and then in 2019, because of all the um, dissension and chaos over Brexit, I felt a, a, a call to come back into politics. 
And so I spent seven months uh, in the European Parliament, which is seven months longer than I would have wished, I assure you. Uh, <laughs> and now uh, I'm retired again. Uh, and uh, I've been asked today to look at the, uh, the Old Testament prophets. And I think when we think of the Old Testament prophets, um, they appear pretty remote from us. We think of people uh, dressed in long robes, uh, living uh, in in a land which is essentially a desert, uh, and talking to a society that went thousands of years ago, and we might be tempted to think, um, well, what's it really got to do with us now today? Uh, of course, we find nuggets all the time. I mean, you've got Isaiah chapter fifty-five uh, when he says, "Well, why spend money on what is not bread?" Yeah. If you look at today's consumer society, you think, well, yeah, got a point there. Um, but of course, today's society is based heavily uh, on commerce. And uh, also, we depend on commerce to look after the poor yeah. uh, and to make money for that society. And then, of course, those of us who were involved in the big pro-life campaigns in Parliament towards the end of the 80s and the early 90s, uh, we would be quoting Jeremiah. Uh, who says uh, that God knew us before we were even formed in the womb. So we were individuals uh, before we came into uh, a, to recognise being. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is something else. There is a much wider message that comes out of the Old Testament uh, prophets. Um, and that is to be faithful to what we believe, to be faithful to God. Yeah. Uh, let's look at Jeremiah again. And he says this, he says, Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a huge echo of that in the New Testament when Christ tells us that if we're ashamed of him, uh, he's going to be ashamed of us before his father. So, there is a real echo there. You know, you've got a duty to do, and if you don't do it, uh, you yourself uh, are, are going to be penalised. Um, the essence of the message coming uh, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from others, is that a very stubborn people should repent. Yes. Now, the thing about the New Testament is it talks to us as individuals. You know, Paul lays down what our duty is. Christ tells us what to do. And it's what we have to do as individuals. The Old Testament prophets were speaking to Israel as a whole. Uh, they were speaking to kings. They were speaking to rulers as yep. well as to individuals. They were saying, you know, the people must do this. The people must do that rather than you as an individual must do this or do that. Um, and uh, I think that. That message to us is very, very strong because it suggests that what we should be saying as Christians today is not just what we have to do, um, but what is now uh, anathema in the secular world, which is what everybody has to do. Uh, when we had the Second World War, there were prayers for the nation. Yeah. To see how far we've come, or rather regress since then, uh, during the recent pandemic, there were no prayers for the nation. I mean, I'm not saying... Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and the Catholic Cardinals and individual vicars all over the country uh, weren't praying in their own 
uh, gatherings, mm-hmm. but there was no national um, prayer to Almighty God uh, to help us. And so uh, I think that is one of the big differences between the Old Testament prophets and uh, the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There is a message there for a state. Yeah. Not just for the individuals who are governed by that state, but for the state itself. Now, you may say, as the result of all that, that um, you know we have to go out and stand on these street corners and call upon the government to uh, repent. I, I think we would not get terribly far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, Matthew tells us uh, that we have to be as wise as serpents. That is, we have to be uh, uh, subtle in our approach. And Paul demonstrated that. You remember when he found the dedication to the unknown God. No, he didn't just go there and say you shouldn't have, you know, gods and, and then an unknown God. You shouldn't be doing it. He didn't do that at all. He said, I'll tell you about the unknown God. Uh, uh, he was wise and, mm. and they were ready to listen. And it's no good trying to go at this with a blunt instrument because in the end, that doesn't uh, actually do uh, God's work. Uh, and I think Paul sums it up. He says, we believe and therefore speak. That seems to me quite obvious. You believe something, you speak it. If you believe it politically, if you uh, believe it as a Christian, if you believe it socially, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. uh, you speak uh, about it. And that really, I think, is the challenge to Christians in politics today. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was asked by the Hansard Society to uh, find a speech that I thought was memorable, I chose Enoch Powell's speech on embryology and experiments on embryos, uh, not because of the subject, but because it was the last speech I could find, um, which actually mentioned Almighty God uh, uh, as as a reason for taking a stand. Now, I think Christians should not be ashamed uh, to um, to make it clear uh, why they're taking uh, the stands they're taking, um, but we do have to be fairly clever about how we do it. Mm-hmm. You should remember Isaiah lived in a time of huge political upheaval and division. You know, mm-hmm. the tribes of Israel uh, were divided. Um, and uh, it, it very, very similar to some of the issues today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it's a combination of being faithful to the message, but being quite cunning about the way we deliver it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, we'd we'd exchanged emails and it was because of your political uh, expertise, wealth of involvement across a whole range of, um, well, decades for a start, but also in Europe most recently and that kind of thing with with the emphasis of reform in mind. So I like what you're saying. We, In one sense, when you, when you talk about not being a blunt instrument, I then think of Jeremiah and the whole the language of being a hammer and a rock against a rock and that kind of thing. But it was the phrase that I'd heard a number of years ago from a chap called Mal Fletcher, who's an Australian, I think he's an apologist, and he talked about not being, it's not possible to be both prophetically correct and politically correct. And I, I just wondered what you thought about that, because you're obviously a, a Christian, you're obviously very involved, have been, still are. How do you resolve those two? Do you think that is reconcilable? Uh, I think it's got to be. You know, mm-hmm. If you uh, want Christians to be involved in, in, a, in affairs of state and to have any role at all uh, in uh, deciding a, a direction uh, for a nation, 
if they'd have any role at all in that, then um, they've somehow got to manage to reconcile two fairly impossible things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I quoted as wise as serpents from Matthew and gave you the example of Paul, because uh, I think they're very relevant. Let me give you an example of the sort of situation you can find yourself in yeah. when you're a Christian in Parliament. Uh, I mentioned just now the pro-life bills at the end of the 80s and 90s. Um, and it became, we were introducing a bill into Parliament uh, in which uh, we were trying to set the upper limit for abortions to 18 weeks. At that time, it was 28 weeks. We wanted to get it down to 18 weeks. Now, it's quite obvious to anybody that none of us believed in abortion at 18 weeks, for heaven's sake. You know, no weeks would have suited us. But, <laughs> but uh, if we'd gone for no weeks, um, yeah, we, it would have gone nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. The very first time we brought the bill into Parliament, it would have been thrown out. People probably wouldn't have even bothered to, to come along. Uh, so we knew that that was an impossibility. So we had to go for something we didn't believe, 18 weeks, in order to get what we did believe, which was the maximum saving of unborn life that we thought we could get. Now, we did get our people to put down amendments to get it lower than that, knowing those amendments would be defeated. But nevertheless, for the sake of taking the stand, uh, we did that. But a much bigger challenge was to face us. And that was when it became very obvious that the second reading, that's the main debate on a bill. It became very obvious at the second reading that people were lending us their support, uh, provided and only provided that we made an exemption from our law, (coughs) our proposed law, uh, for uh, handicapped children in the womb, children with disabilities. Now that, to us, um, was profoundly wicked to say that we would protect everybody except those with disabilities. Um, But we looked at the figures. And uh, of those who were aborted between the 18th week and the 28th week, only 8% were aborted on the grounds of disability. So our dilemma was this. If we had a shipwreck with 100 people on board, And we knew from the outset that we could only get 92 off. Would we get the 92 off or would we say we're going to let that entire ship go down for the sake of the eight we can't get off? Mm -hmm. That was our dilemma Mm -hmm. as Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in the end, we we went for the exemption because we said we've got to try and maximise the saving of unborn life. It's all we can do. You know, Mm -hmm. we can do what we can do as we can do it. Yeah. Um, And let me just digress a bit there. I don't know whether you um, or people who join this podcast um, have watched a film called Hacksaw Ridge. Yes. You have. You've seen it. Now, just to summarise it, you've got a conscientious objector mm-hmm. who nevertheless joins up because he wants to be a combat medic and yes. to help people rather than kill them. Uh, and in the end, he rescues 75 people. But there is this um, continued theme. But when he was getting those people out, he didn't say, oh, God, let me get everybody who's in there out. He didn't say that. His prayer was just one more, Lord, just one more. Mm -hmm. And as he got somebody else out and sent him down to safety, he went back and he prayed just one more, Lord. He never prayed for 75 lives. He prayed for just one Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that. If you listen to the prayers in the average church, you know, for peace in the world, for, you know, for all this stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas what we should sometimes be praying for 
is for God to bless our small steps. And that's the view I took on the pro-life bills, that even if we made a small step, mm-hmm. you know, God would bless that. Yeah. We weren't going to get everything we wanted in one go. It wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. So is strictly, you know, strictly speaking, you could say, well, you know, we were being politically correct rather than prophetically correct. But our aim was to be uh, faithful. Yeah, no, I understand that. I think everyone will understand that. That's that is. I can see the the wisdom of that. There's a wisdom attached to what we're saying here. I think. Um, is there anything particularly about the life of Isaiah, as you've maybe reflected on it even earlier today or or this morning? You know that because we're f- featuring all of the major prophets with the view to linking to Jesus' walk with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And everything that you've, I, it was, we've worked out, it's about a seven, a seven mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. You can imagine Jesus would have had a certain amount of time to, to open all those things up concerning himself. So is there anything particularly about Isaiah's life, maybe his, his enmeshment, as it were, in the life of the political world that, that strikes you as something that we can learn as we, as we seek to be prophetic as the people today, you know? I think the um, the lesson from Isaiah, as it is the lesson from from many in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, um, is to keep going, if you like, you know, to be resolute, keep going. Um, and as I say, he uh, he was prophesying at a time of enormous division uh, and uh, angst and political upheaval, um, but he. His theme is constant. I mean, apart from his prophecies of the coming of Christ, which are there very clearly, but apart from that, his theme is absolutely constant that um, the peoples of Israel, all the tribes, and the rulers of all the tribes must be uh, repentant and faithful to God. Mm -hmm. And he stayed resolute in that. Now, I'm often asked, who are my favourite politicians? And I mention <coughs> two in particular. One is Churchill and the other is Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. they both had a characteristic in common. So did Isaiah. They never gave up. <coughs> they didn't change the message. Uh, no matter how many setbacks they had, they didn't change the message. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is massively important. I mean, Wilberforce did not come on the scene and abolish slavery in <coughs> a few stirring speeches. You know, it was a 40-year campaign. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the same with Churchill. Um, we forget that people didn't see him as this wonderful person who was going to save the people with his leadership. They didn't see that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw somebody who was actually warlike at the time when everybody else wanted peace. I mean, the desire was for peace. Uh, and Churchill understood that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he didn't back off, and Isaiah never backs off. But Isaiah keeps going. Yeah, hence the passage in Jeremiah about being like a hammer and jet- exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's a question for you, and I, I hope this makes sense. I was just thinking earlier. I was thinking earlier about the. Um, the, one of the well-known passages from Isaiah, this is the way that the Christian world works, isn't it? We think, we think of the big books and we think of individual passages and we kind of, you know, cherry pick a little bit. One of, the, one of them is Isaiah 6 where he has his commissioning. And thinking of this, the relationship between the political and the prophetic, 
whatever your whatever everybody listening, whatever your understanding of prophetic or or prophecy in the New Testament is. Um, is it, let me just look at these words here with you, if, if that's okay. At the beginning of Isaiah six, and again, it'll be familiar. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lift, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then the, the next five or six verses goes on, and it's a stunning sense of uh, Isaiah's lips being touched with this with this coal to prepare him. But just this is the thought, okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I know there's a little bit of doubt here as to when Isaiah's prophetic ministry actually started. Was it at this moment or was it prior to this? But let's assume for a moment that it was in this moment. Um, Thinking of the relationship here between the, the, the death of a monarch and the beginning of this profoundly significant prophetic ministry, do you think... Um, given thinking about your role over the years with regards to social reform as a as a Christian, do you think there's a significance? Will there be a significance to the Queen's passing? We've seen Queen, we've seen uh, Prince Philip's passing recently. Uh, my view on that is that there will be a significance to to the Queen's passing because I I think she's a godly woman. I think I think it's significant. Um, and what's what's waiting? After that, in terms of Charles, the difference in Charles' spirituality, what, what do you think about the relationship between the death of a monarch and and the prophetic timeline, if that makes sense? It does make sense. Um, always, always, when a monarch dies, uh, there is a, a, a period of social questioning, if you like. Um, and this is the longest reigning monarch in history. Yeah. Um, in a, I was uh, five when she was crowned. Uh, and therefore, uh, the vast majority uh, of people alive have never known in England, that is, in Britain, have never yeah. known any other monarch. Yeah. So it, it, it has been a stable factor um, in our lives. And yes, she is a godly woman. Um, that is undeniable. Um, and uh, I think also Charles has faith, but he has got a rather different interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to unleash anything in, in, in terms of the life of the church or, or, or the life of the nation? I suspect less than we think for this reason. The king is dead, long live the king. When the monarch dies, Charles will be proclaimed uh, and we're going to have a massive state funeral and then almost immediately the whole country is going to be a buzz in anticipation of a coronation, which we haven't seen since 1953. Mm-hmm. And so there will be a, a huge looking forward to something uh, something new. I think there'll be questions about the future of the monarchy, which I think will be pretty swiftly um, cast into the outer darkness, quite honestly, but I, I think they'll be there. But is it going to actually make a difference to the Christian life of the country? I think possibly not. Because although we know that the Queen is faithful, although we know that she goes to church every week, we know that she prays, um, she will certainly never uh, have any difficulty about saying God bless you or anything like that, which ties our politicians up in knots. Um, although that is all true, um, what she, she is an example as opposed to a preacher. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is a very big difference. 
And so I think people are aware of that example, but uh, certainly non-believers are only aware of it as very much something in the background, not aware of it as, as, as something to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I, I think I, I can best uh, answer your question by saying I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yes. <laughs> it's impossible to answer for, with uh, surety, isn't it? But you can see my train of thought, hopefully, yes, with I it. Yes, I can. Um, we, d- we don't know the hearts of man. We, you know, we we stood before God, a sense one on one, isn't it? Audience of one. Maybe just can we finish with just a little bit um, of a deviation from Isaiah? Unless there's anything more that you want to speak about Isaiah. Let us deviate from Isaiah. Yeah, but maybe let's let's because we did we did meet a couple of months ago, didn't we? And it was good to whenever that was. I forget when it was to be honest, but it was within the within this period of pandemic, and I think we talked about. Um, evangelicalism, Catholicism. We met on this podcast. It was great to spend some time with Gavin Asherton a couple of weeks ago. Had a, had a good conversation with him, talking of the Queen. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are um, six months on, you know, in terms of... Uh, you just mentioned that. It's quite an interesting point, actually, Anne, that you mentioned this this need for resolute willingness to, to keep on keeping on. There are certain things that my wife, Mary, and I will ant- anticipate we'll say until we die or Jesus returns be- because you know we're not one one trick ponies but there is a need to repeat repeatedly for the sake of the whole um but you know don't don't feel the pressure of needing to offer variety in other words it's 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 preach the word preach the gospel but also be aware of what the prophetic word is and that may that, that may last our lifetime so i'm just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the general experiences you must have a lot of connections a lot of conversations what is your sense uh, f- regarding the church and yeah just just is there any sense of the church coming to their senses that's really what i want to know i mean thoughts and plans that is no um there are um see you in 6 months and let's pick the conversation up there <laughs> There are two. Uh, there are two um, parts uh, of of the Christian Church in this country, um, which are indeed very active, uh, are expanding. Um, there's the Catholic Church and there's the Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bit in the middle is the establishment. That that is what we've got to remember. You know, the bit in the middle um, is the establishment. Now. Mother Teresa, I think, once said something very profound. She said, look, we're not called on to succeed. We're called on faithfully to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got to remember that. Mm-hmm. And very often I think we think in terms of some <coughs> massive cataclysmic change. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to keep on and on and on, and we're going to have to keep trying on and on. But the establishment... Um, when you say the when you say the establishment, just for everybody listening, what, what do you what do you mean exactly? Right. Well, the Anglican Church is an established church. Okay. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Um, it's the official church uh, of the country. I'm very much hoping that Charles will not seek to change that. Uh, it's the official church uh, of the country, um, and that is why you know the coronation, the state funerals, etc. These ceremonies are always Christian based in in terms of the liturgy and, yeah. and the promises made. Uh, so um, we have an established church. If you think of the Church of England, you do not think of the evangelical wing, because where is it among the bishops? 
among the bishops in the House of Lords. Uh, and of course, the Catholic bishops don't sit in the Lords. So when you're actually looking at where the state is going, um, you're looking at something which is pretty wishy-washy. And mm-hmm. um, I, I cannot believe that throughout this entire pandemic, we have not had prayers for the nation. I just can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing. I, I made a mental note just as you, you'd mentioned that the the absence of that. We were talking. We we talked to a lot of people across. As you'll, you'll appreciate across a wide spe- the the proverbial denominational spectrum. And um, I was making the case to somebody that the the the, the call. Ret- someone was making the the point that the call to repentance is something that's quite old hat. And my point was, well, again, it's linked to this thought of being resolute and keeping on keeping on. It's like, well, if if, the, if there hasn't been a response to the call to repentance on a national scale, then no wonder the record isn't changing. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the record is not going to change for a long time to come. Um, I mean, when did you last hear? Uh, uh, and that was why I mentioned the Enoch Powell speech. You know, when did you last hear a Christian in Parliament standing up and saying, um, I'm doing this because um, I believe that's what God wants. Yeah, well, uh, in my case, Russ, you know, you know you the know. church is not going to get is not going to get active. The church will always mm-hmm. compromise. The established church in this country mm-hmm. uh, will always compromise. I am talking about the established church. Yeah, yeah. Well, we agree on that for sure. Can I just tease something out in the in the last few minutes that we've got together, Anne? And I, I do appreciate your time and your thoughts. So thank you. Um, Thinking of Wilberforce there, and I think there's a quote to the effect of that every time he came across slavery, it was like a a, a tiny drop of arsenic to his soul. And the the point being, and this is my point, that there was this profound sense of his own personal um, thinking of Isaiah just there, you know, that sense of him, woe is me, woe is me, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips and so on. There is, I think, in this in this conversation about being, about being prophetic, that it starts it starts at home, doesn't it? Do you can you offer any thoughts just quickly as we finish about how, regardless of the the state of the church, the institution, whether whatever you think of evangelicalism or Catholicism, for yourself personally as a, as a believer before the living God, have you got any thoughts about just that sense of? Living in a world but not being of the world, being a, a sojourner, an alien, you know, your thoughts over the last 18 months, how have you felt your soul um, tremble? First of all, I, I mean, I think a, a general comment on the church. I think the single biggest problem um, that we have had as Christians uh, over the last six, seven decades has been that we have grown very complacent. Uh, I grew out of at a time when it was perfectly normal to go to church. Churches were full. Uh, there was a church in every parish. There was a priest in every church. Um, and uh, we had religious instruction in schools. Every single school child would know the Gospels, the parables. We'd know also quite a lot about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. We had acts of communal worship in school every single day. Um, and I think we were complacent very complacent and expected that to continue. And of course, it didn't. And the erosion was gradual. It wasn't a big bang. The erosion was gradual. And instead of having a church militant, we've had a church complacent, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, and that let that erosion happen. Mm -hmm. And 
now you have children who can't even tell you what happened on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Now, they are going to grow up into adults to whom religion is completely marginal and they possibly think it's a bit farmy mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the duty of all Christians, you know, people often say to me, well, what's the government going to do about it? And I say nothing at all. Just about the government. This is about all of us. You know, mm-hmm. how did Christianity grow in the first place? Because mm-hmm. we all took out the good news. Because yeah. people travelled uh, across the world to take the good news. Yeah. And that's how it began, mm-hmm. and that now is how it's got to be rescued. So when you ask me how I trembled in my own self, every single one of us is responsible. If we want a revival of Christianity in this country, every single one of us mm-hmm. is responsible for doing that. Can you see reform within the church? Not, not um, anything significant um, and not anything very soon. I mean, gradually, I, I think the erosion will go on. I think the evangelical wing will grow. Um, uh, but I think that uh, and, and, and the Catholic wing um, has grown because of, the, um, because of the movement of peoples. You know, mm-hmm. we have an enormous immigrant population, um, particularly when we had, uh, 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 we still have got, um, a lot of people from Poland, uh, who just came and they just said, hang on, what's this? One mm-hmm. mass a day. You know, mm-hmm. We don't have one mass a day. We have mm-hmm. three or four masses a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he put a different expectation on us. Um, but I think that the vast centre is too weak, too feeble, um, cares greatly what the world thinks, greatly what the world thinks, doesn't want to offend anybody. I mean, Christ offended everybody. I mean, do you think they called him a glutton and a wine-bibber? He drove the merchants out of the temple and he broke the Sabbath in the terms that that they had then. He did all these things. He scandalized Mm -hmm. Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He scandalized them. And yet we're so afraid of offending anybody. Yeah. Indeed, Jesus. There are many Jesuses. (laughs) And uh, that's why we need the Bible. Um... Do you have any encouraging thoughts just as we close? Because the reason I say that is because I, I think there has to be reform that, and that surely will be because we see a church at the end of the age who is prepared in splendor. So whether in our lifetime or not, there has that we know that there's a, a clad iron guarantee that the church will experience significant radical reform. Do you have any uh, just just passing thoughts as we close about anything that you can see that gives you a, a hope that there will be something more radical than perhaps you even think there might be? Well, I think perhaps the nice thing is that we don't have to depend on the church as an institution. We depend on Almighty God. Mm-hmm. You know, and he has made promises to us that, that you know, that if we are faithful, uh, he will not be ashamed of us. And that, and that I think, is, is where we take our comfort. But it is down to each individual. And I would go back to Hacksaw Just one more, Lord. Just mm. one more. Not mm-hmm. everything all at once. Not the church wake up overnight. Mm-hmm. Just one more. Just yeah. one church. Mm-hmm. One church in one parish. Revive. Yeah. Become strong. Mm-hmm. Send out hope. That'll do it. Yeah. Those small steps. That'll do it. I, th- I remember you saying that about Hackshaw Ridge when we spoke a few months ago, but I, I think that point you just touched on there in terms of people not relying on the church is hugely significant. Hugely significant. And I, and I mean that across all forms of... Uh, evangelicalism and what have you. Our time's gone, but I think that's a very good, fi- very good thought to think of. That people are before God Almighty, and there's not going to be any kind of pastor holding your hand when you're before Him. Thank you very much again, Anne. It's it's really good to see you. And um, would you would you mind praying for us just to close? Uh, indeed. 
Yes. Thank you. Oh Lord, bless us wherever we try to take your name, in our places of work, in our homes, perhaps to members of our family, and to those who do not know you. <clears throat> and Lord, give us the courage to do that. Let us not look to success, but to endeavour. Mm. And let us always be grateful for even the very smallest of advances. Of advances. Mm. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this time. Thank you for the cross. We thank you for your suffering on it. We thank you that you, for the joy set before you, you endured all of that and that you are surely coming and that you are surely at work within your people, your covenant people, prophetically. And I, I pray for Anne. I pray for her family, her team. I pray for her ministry. I pray for her work. I ask you to continue to establish the work of her hands and bless her prophetically and politically, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Into the Prayer. We trust that it's been a comfort and inspiration as well as perhaps a, a provocation towards the number one goal, which is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. If you want to get involved with what we're doing, we've got a new way now of trying to encourage that more intentionally. Go ahead to the show notes and check out the link to the Patreon page that we've got up. Perhaps perhaps it would be good for you to get involved in that, not just only for a financial um, contribution, stroke commitment, but also towards developing relationship. We're open to that with people, obviously, within reason. So go ahead, check that out. And until next week, let's continue to pray Maranatha above all things. Come, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm.